Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. When we have the sovereignty of our ability to think critically, we see through the bullshit. That experience was the thing that really shook me to the core and had me reevaluate everything that I thought was important in my life. Oh, the spiritual movement is the ego's favorite place to hide. Be careful. The fact that you can't suggest that we should look deeper is the real problem. I'd rather be pulled by my love for freedom, for my love for people, for my love for health, than I would be to be stopped by my fear of being liked. We'd rather stay in the pain of our illusion than face the discomfort of the unknown. Morality has been weaponized. Our language has been weaponized. I have something in common with liberals and with conservatives. There's a lot of us that fit somewhere in the middle there. When you have that unconscious or subconscious thought that I don't deserve this life, Mm -hmm. you will sabotage your life. This is the thing I wish everyone would do in their life. Let me, let me re-examine everything that I feel strongly about, that level of sensitivity that's needed for us to rebuild this human experience in a way that serves both our need to innovate and grow and expand and excel with our need to stay grounded, and simple, connected to nature and each other. Cognitive dissonance. What exactly is that? It's a term that we've heard a lot about lately. It's something that we get into in this podcast on a very deep level. But by definition, it refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors. This produces a feeling of mental discomfort leading to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors to reduce that discomfort and to restore some sort of balance in our world. It's a very confusing state of being for us. And in order for us to try to make sense of it, it becomes overwhelming. And so we shut down all the things coming in and we get to that state of where we feel safe again. The unfortunate thing is we start to shut out all the truth and we get clouded by a lot of misinformation. This is something that we dive deep into in this episode. You know, my guest today, Mickey Willis, he's a true beacon of light in our world. He's a man that approaches life with an open heart and a warrior's courage. In this episode, we discuss a lot of things that are hard for most of us to confront, but we intend to try to make sense of it, hence the theme of cognitive dissonance. Now, Mickey has made one of the most important films of our time, Plandemic 2, Indoctrination. With it, he has exposed just how many of our trusted power structures, our corporations and governments are operating and have been operating for many, many decades. And it's, it's, it's eye-opening. You know, when we wake up to these things, it's challenging, it's confusing. And a lot of times we just want to retreat to that safe space. But with it, we start to give away our personal freedom, our sovereignty and the like. And we go, and again, we go deep into this in this episode. This is going to be a challenging episode for some, if not many. It calls into questions a lot of our beliefs around these institutions and leaders 
that we've entrusted with our safety and our freedom. This is not meant to trigger for the sake of triggering. It is meant as an opportunity or as an invitation for us to examine what's going on around us and to try to make some sense of it, to wonder why good people like Mickey, who have ideas that run counter to the common narrative, are being censored. Whatever happened to free speech? Why can't we take in all the ideas that people are sharing? Why is that stuff being squashed? And we start to talk about that throughout this entire episode. And again, this is an invitation to listen with an open heart and an open mind to see where it lands for you. And for me, it's as important an episode as I've released as I continue down this path to question it all. Thanks so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Much love. On The Great Unlearn with my brother, Mickey Willis. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you. Good to be here. One way to maybe ground us into a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, this idea of cognitive dissonance and what exactly that means and uh, how it plays out. Well, the, the term itself is pretty obvious in that it's uh, a lack of harmony. It's confusion within our thinking, right? So cognitive dissonance. When we're clear-minded, our critical thinking capacity kicks in and we can see what's happening. And right now we're all experiencing, regardless of what side we, we claim, if, if any side at all, it's very easy to point at the other side as being insane. We see stuff that is right in front of them that they don't see. And the only explanation for that really is cognitive dissonance. It's that their, their, their mind is scrambled in such a way that they're so confused by the onslaught of illogical and conflicting information that the mind just kind of goes into a chaos mode. And that's the mode that the people that are behind everything that's not working for us right now, the, the stripping away of our liberties, that's the mode they want us in. Because when we're there, we can then be led. It's very similar to driving somewhere and trying to find some location that you're unfamiliar with. You know, if your maps isn't working and, you know, you finally have to stop and ask somebody, where, how, do I, how do I get here? So when you've reached a point where you can't find your path, then you ask for outside support and guidance. And that's where they want us to be followers. Yeah, and then we come in, right, when we're on different sides, the dividing, and then we police ourselves. That's right. One of the most alarming things for me, really, is that the very small group of, um, I hesitate to even call them elite forces, because there's something about that that um, <laughs> you know, they've, they've been classified as, but I don't see them as elite. Um, I see them as very frightened, um, very powerful, but very frightened people. Their ability to psychologically manipulate the masses such that they no longer have to fight their own battles is a very terrifying thing. That they have so convinced such a great deal of the population that guys like me, who are simply risking it all, my career, my safety, and all of that, to help them, but somehow they're convinced that Big Pharma and big media and all the people who have every reason to lie to protect their trillions of dollars of investment are the people we should listen to. And the medical experts, even the people who have been assigned to lead this pandemic, this manufactured crisis, if you look at their history, their track record, if you go back to Anthony Fauci's, you know, to the 80s on what he actually did with AIDS, it is unbelievable to me and a lot of people who know that history 
that he's still in a position of power. So many mistakes were made. So much fraud was uncovered. Um, Anyone who knows how the AIDS epidemic was handled knows that tens of thousands of people, mostly men, were killed because of bad medical advice at the hands of Anthony Fauci, yet we assign him as America's doctor. So a couple of things. First of all, that was very personal for you because your brother died. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was my first introduction really in my in my early 20s. Um, my, my first introduction to the problem in Western medicine happened when uh, my older brother, who was 14 years older than me, um, watched him suffer through the AIDS experience for eight years. Uh, li- literally, you know, began as a very handsome, very eloquent man to a prematurely aged skeleton of who he used to be. And then finally succumbed to the bad medical advice that he'd been given, the bad medicine that he'd been given. Um, and 23 days later, my mom, who was a cancer survivor, succumbed to her cancer and died 23 days later from the treatments that they gave her. It's the radiation, it's the medicine that ultimately took her. And at that time, that era, there was no real clear pathways for me to get on the internet and, and research and figure out what's going on here. And, and, you know, just wanted to mourn and put it all behind me. But then 30 years later, when I saw that Anthony Fauci was resurfacing and, you know, going back to when my brother passed away, <clears throat> his community, he was gay, and his community um, had told me, your brother didn't die of the virus. He died of the treatment. And I heard his name then, but I had forgotten it probably by choice. And then all these years later, and I see, well, wait, wait a minute, that's, that's Anthony Fauci. That's the guy. How is he still there? How is he still there doing this and leading our whole country? And then I started to really watch and I went, you know, like at what moment is he going to inform the masses of the importance of building our natural immune system? And that never came. And I went, I see he's never changed. He's now preventing medicines that actually can help us. They can make this thing go away tomorrow. For instance, hydroxychloroquine, a lot, a lot of the different medicines, but that was the first one that he pushed when he said it was anecdotal. And you can't get it now, right? I happen to have some from the very beginning because yeah. my doctor sent it to me and I had mentioned it recently. And people were like, that shit's like gold. I'm like, I had yeah. no idea. Hard to get now. And it's, you know, 70 year old tried and true tested WHO approved, FDA approved medicine. And it was actually the breaking point for a lot of the doctors that I interviewed for pandemic because some of them had said to me, um, you know, I was really hesitant to jump into this arena. Your, your first installment of pandemic was, was so smeared by the press that I just didn't want to take that heat and risk my career as a professional. And talk about that a little bit, just so people have the, the, the context of, of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we released uh, the first episode of pandemic, which was 26 minutes long. And it was uh, foundation of it was an interview with a virologist named Judy Michaelvitz, Dr. Judy Michaelvitz, who worked in the laboratories in the eighties with Anthony Fauci and saw what he was doing then and refused to play the game. And there's a, a big game here that we'll, we'll talk about, you know, during this podcast. But in short, uh, a lot of scientists get pressured. Um, if they ever want to see any funding of their lab, if they ever want to have a paper published or, or have any kind of, you know, substantial career to make any difference, there's a, a top-down uh, set of unspoken rules that they must adhere to. And those who don't are usually just rooted out of the system or called a quack or, or whatever it might be. And Judy wasn't willing to play that game. And it's one of the reasons they, they've attacked her so hard. And so 
she basically was asked one day to, um, to do something illegal, which is very common. Um, I've had other doctors tell me that they had those, those, they were confronted by those choices too, of where some director of a lab would come to them and ask them to forge a signature or to do just one little crime. It's fine. It's for a grant, but the, our third party is out of, out of the country on a boat and they can't sign right now. And they wouldn't mind you signing this. Can you please do this so we can get that $23 million grant? It's going to keep our whole lab alive. You know, and I've had doctors say that, you know, they've refused to do that and they got fired because what they're trying to do is to get dirt on them. And they go, okay, great. You've just done that. Now, if you should uncover anything dirty that's happening here through this university or this lab or whatever it is, you better not say anything because we have you on fraud. Or the next thing that comes through and they go, now we want you to, to do this. And you go, oh, I don't, that doesn't, I don't think I want to do that. And they go, well, you've already committed fraud. So we kind of got you. You want to do 15 years in prison or do you just want to follow along with this and just, yeah. but back to the, to the point was I had a lot of doctors that said the breaking point was them for them was the hydroxychloroquine moment because, you know, as one doctor said to me, he said, I've been prescribing this for 40 years. It's an amazing medicine. I've had two side effects, upset stomach and upset stomach. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And he said, so I decided to talk to you and come out and risk my career because at this point they're killing people. And we know it. Anyone in the AMA and people who know hydroxychloroquine knows that that thing that he just said, the guy who's running this pandemic is a lie. And it's a lie that's going to cost tens of thousands of lives. And it's a lie that's told because they don't want to stop the pandemic. They need it to go for as long as they need for them to have the leverage of control that they desire. And so they had to stop a medicine like that from being widely available because it would just end this thing overnight. Mm -hmm. Everyone would get it. You know, it's 60 cents a, a serving instead of a thousand dollars or whatever their other medications are costing and they can't patent it in the same way. So they can't profit off of it. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it comes down to. Unfortunately is, is, uh, is the greed of these individuals who had taken an oath to do no harm, but somewhere along the line through incremental steps and temptation, they have sold their soul and in turn have jeopardized the health of the human organism. I would love to just give people a little bit of your background. Sure. So I directed my first movie uh, in uh, the late 90s. The movie was never fully released. There's a whole other story to that. But if you look at even the poster for the movie, it was called, we had to change the name of it, but originally it was called Shoeshine Boys. It was about a, a garage band that wanted to achieve fame by pulling some international stunt that would gain them the media recognition that they needed so that they could sell albums and become something, right? Um, so if you look at the poster, it's really, it's these two young men wrapped in an American flag with barcodes tattooed on their forehead. Mm. And so you can start to see what I was interested in even back then in the late 90s. I mean, it's very uh, iconic symbol of what is now come to full fruition here. And so I made this film and Columbine happened. And because my film was ultimately about two young men who had decided to pull a prank on America, which was as the Olympic torch carrier is running through their town, they're going to kidnap the Olympic torch carrier and the torch. And until they gain all this, you know, media recognition, and even if they have to do a couple of years in jail or whatever, they're going to get out and they're going to be famous. Because back then it was like, you know, all the, all the gangster rappers were becoming famous based upon how notorious they could become, right? So there's a lot of influence to, to be that. And, um, and so, you know, 
uh, it was Columbine happened and suddenly all the studios, there was a bidding war over the film and thousands of people were showing up just to the screenings of it. this unknown film by an unknown filmmaker with two unknown actors. And we had a bidding war going on. The Columbine happened and everybody pulled, you know, there were a couple of teen movies in the theater at the time. They pulled them out of the theaters and they immediately people went, we can't touch your film. It's about two kids terrorizing America, Columbine. We can't even go there. It's too sensitive. And so we changed the name to Prank because ultimately it was about a prank. And uh, one of the actors in the film, not one of the two leads, but one of the supporting actors passed away. And I went to New York for his funeral and I had some distribution meetings. The manager of the character who died, the actor who died, he, uh, his name was Doug. We had dinner on 9-8. During the dinner, he found out that we'd never been to the World Trade Center and that we were scheduled to leave on 9-11. He became obsessed. Like, why, why haven't you been to the World Trade Center? You've been in New York a few times. And I said, I'm just not really into the tourist things. And I can imagine what it's like. Two very tall buildings with a great view. I got it. And he said, no, 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 you don't have it. He said, you need to go to the World Trade Center. He goes, here, and he grabbed a napkin. He wrote me, take this subway here, go to here, do that. And I said, what? I'm just, why are you so concerned with me going to the World Trade Center, Doug? He had to think about it for a moment. He goes, well, go in, go to the top. Like you said, of course, the, the view is spectacular. It's quite amazing to see New York from that perspective. But I want you to actually stand at the base of these buildings. And I want you to look up at them. And I want you to think about these idiots who tried to blow them up a few years ago. And I want you to see what a joke it was that they thought they could take down those two monolithic structures of America. Mm. And I was like, I just laughed and I said, all right, Doug, whatever. Sure. <laughs> So, whatever, phone, whatever. so I went in and I went, you know, looked at everything cool. And then I went down, I took a, a photo of me just to show him I, I'm here. And then the next morning I'm sleeping on Doug's fold out couch and I, I, someone slaps my foot really hard. And I, so I wake up startled and I look at him and he's white and he's pointing at the TV and he's going, they bombed us, man. They bombed us. They bombed us. And I look at the TV. I'm like, you know, rubbing my eyes. I'm like, what? And I see smoke coming out of one of the world trade centers what what is this what and he said they, they just bombed us and i said i i have to go down there and he, and he looked at me and he goes i was just thinking that let's go we jumped on bicycles with our media badges and we, we we went right to the scene and got in and and ended up doing search and rescue which was ultimately body recovery body part recovery for three days and so that experience was the thing that really shook me to the core and had me reevaluate everything that I thought was important in my life at that point. And to be perfectly transparent and honest, um, I was following a very typical Hollywood career. I wanted power. I wanted fame. I wanted all of that. I wanted to, to win an Academy Award. And, and the, the system just kind of creates that. It's not why I originally got in there. I originally got in because I wanted to move people. I wanted to tell stories that made a difference. But being in the system long enough, I was suddenly confronted that I'm one of them now. I'll take any job. I don't care what the message is or if the product is destroying the environment or if the music video is degrading women, whatever, you know, bring it. The bigger, the better. Let's go. But suddenly I'm in that moment just going, you know, I'm watching Wall Street and rescue vehicles come in and just flip these expensive automobiles over left and right. A symphony of car alarms going off. And I'm just like, Part of me is like, I'm sick because I'm watching a, you know, Maserati get destroyed. And, and then I'm like having to check in with myself going, wait a minute, why does that even matter to me right now? That 
piece of material stuff. I'm standing on the rubble of bodies right now. Like I had to really, I was kind of, I felt shame of like that, that, that matters. No, it doesn't matter. None of those, those are just somebody named that car and said it was cool and put a price tag on it. And that's, well, then what does matter to me? And I didn't know. And that's when I started to really consider, am I, am I in this matrix? I think I am because, because I'm, I'm now aware as a witness to my own, to my own thoughts and behavior, I'm aware that uh, my thought patterns here probably aren't based in nature or are they healthy for me? And so what am I going to do after this experience? Because I can't see myself getting back into the same line of work that I was doing before. You know, is that what I'm here for? Is that what I got into this for? I don't, I don't remember that being the goal. Would I show any of the work that I've done proudly? Would I show that to my children someday when I have children? What would I show them? I, I couldn't think of one job I'd done that would be like, here, son, I want you to see this. Daddy made this. So then I'm like, why am I doing this? Just for the money? Those questions started to change everything for me. And I finally came back to Los Angeles, and I, I was in a, in a marriage at that point that I had probably shouldn't have got, should have gotten out of much sooner. But I loved her, and she was, she was a great, great, great lady, and her family was so wonderful but we weren't compatible. We just simply weren't. We tried really, really hard. And I had made mistakes early on that I don't think she could have ever forgiven me for. And I understand that. It was part of my growth as a man to realize that being trustworthy is probably one of the most important qualities that we can strive for. And I wasn't trustworthy. And I paid the price for that. And she never healed from that. We never healed from that. And, and I, so I came back and I said, it's time to end this relationship. We started filing for a separation and, and I went to live um, in a friend's guest house in the Napa Valley. And it took me about a year to reinvent myself and to say, if, if I come back, cause I didn't know, I was really scared to be, to be perfectly frank because I had only been, I'd, I was in a band when I was young and I'd only known that world of entertainment and I didn't go to college. I didn't have a degree and I, I didn't know what to do outside of that. And it's really what I wanted to do. But I thought, I don't want to be part of that industry. How do I do what I want to do without having to follow those rules? Because I don't know anyone right now, even the people that I know that are successful, who are genuinely happy. I couldn't think of anyone that was fulfilled, that had a great relationship, that was in love. And so I said, if, if it's not all of that stuff, what is it? What do I do? I don't know what to do with my life at this point. I can't imagine getting a job. Mm. Never had one. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not good at working for other people. You know, I'm just not good at that. And so it took me about a year, almost a year and a half to say, I know I'm not the only one. And that's what gave me hope. Because I said, if this is occurring for me, if I'm waking up to ask myself these questions, the paramount question is, why in the fuck did I choose to be in this line of work? Really? It was to move people. It was to do something, do something valuable that I could look back at my legacy of work and say I did my best to do something good. But I lost that. And I know a lot of people lost that. So can I create a playing field? Like I had a, based on a sports metaphor, I said, here I am, I've joined the NFL and I'm complaining about getting tackled. 
<laughs> like that's the game, but I don't want to get tackled. And so why am I in this league? I'm not going to change the league. They created the league. They have every right to tackle. Mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm, I'm, my body's hurt. I don't want to ch- get tackled anymore. And so then I started thinking, I'm like, well, every football, every baseball, they all have uh, alternative leagues with slightly different rules. And I thought, can we create an experience, a playing field, and create our own rules? And so we created something called Elevate Film Festival. And I started inviting all my friends that were creating, you know, top movies and stuff. Let's come in. And the challenge is this. It was happening in countries across the world. And we'd say, we'll give you a small budget and a short period of time. And you show us what's right with that area of the world. You're from Indonesia. Great. Show me the heroes of Indonesia. Show me the technologies that are being created that the news doesn't want to focus on. Just show us what's right. Show us the stuff that people need to know to understand that our future is actually not just possible, but awesome. Mm. And this thing blew up overnight. And there were a lot of people that were like, thank you, because we've needed someplace to put our passion and our purpose, and we can't find it in Hollywood. And so that's kind of the foundation of where things started. (laughs) That's so beautiful. I didn't know all the details around September 11th, so that appreciate you uncovering that today that gives us a good basis for for maybe how to get into where pandemic came from well the human organism is suffering you know not everybody and not all the time but there's a lot of suffering and at the very least i would say there's a lot of people who have just succumbed to the discomfort and they've they they've they've found their their comfort within the discomfort mm. And what are the things that I've learned? Then I, cause I started doing a lot of inner work, a lot of, you know, ceremony, a lot of practices started to do yoga and meditation and just, you know, stuff that wasn't in my lineage. No one does it. They all eat McDonald's and, you know, yeah. and they're very unconscious language and all of that. And I love my, my family. They're wonderful, but that I come from that kind of, you know, in a sense, dysfunction. And so it was all a new world to me but I started experiencing people that, that made more sense. Started hmm. experiencing people that didn't complain about everything. I started experiencing people that were finding, they were healthy. I'll just put it that way. Healthy of mind, healthy of spirit, healthy of body. And I, I would start to ask them as a filmmaker, and as a storyteller, what's your practice? And they would always come back to some form of meditation or, or, or you know, psychedelic work or, whatever it might be. And so I said, oh, well, I, I, I should probably do this myself because I'm, I'm seeking that too. I want to get back into balance and I want to be, I want to optimize my health and my life and the health of my mind above all. Cause I, I've witnessed a lot of people in my family deal with depression and just to disconnect from the deepest of relationships. And I, and I, I really desire deep relationships, authentic, deep relationships. And so I started, I started focusing my work, my inner work on learning how to, let me rephrase that, remembering how to. And I, and I say that with clear intention because I've worked with a lot of indigenous elders through the years and I've made the mistake of saying that I was learning from them. And, and each time they've corrected me to say, I'm not teaching you anything. You're not learning anything. You're remembering. And mm-hmm. so understanding that 
I was coming back into remembering what I knew as a child, remembering my connectedness with all things, interconnectedness with nature itself and all people. And, and the work to get there for me was, you know, meditation and psychedelic work. And so I started doing that work. And then I, I, I started focusing my lens on those things. I made a movie called Neurons to Nirvana, Understanding Psychedelic Medicines, because I found such great growth through that work. And so I was really focused in what, what could probably be classified as the self-help world. Mm-hmm. Working with all the top people from the Dalai Lama on, and again, being very transparent, which is all I'm committed to doing here today with you, I started to find that there was just as much not more pretentiousness and phoniness within that movement. And all the people that I, I ad, not all, but a lot of the people that I admired from afar, as soon as I'd get behind the curtain with them, and now I'm actually hanging with them and asking them questions and editing their material, and I'm now their producer, I start to see the flaws, and I was very disappointed in a lot of them. You know, like, this guy's full of shit. <laughs> This guy's talking about love, relationship, and whatever, and he's now confiding in me with how many girlfriends he has in every state that he goes to. His wife has no idea. Like, like, whoa. Wow. Wow. And it happened so many times that I was like, wow, what is going on with you? <laughs> you know, like, what is... And then I, I would meet some people that are just really true, and it's like, gosh, that, that's what I'm looking for. So after all these moments of encountering these people that I just were like, this is, this is not real. This guy's selling a book. He's selling a course and he found a niche. And then I, you know, I talked with one really brilliant guy one day. He said, oh, the spiritual movement is the ego's favorite place to hide. Be careful. And I went, yeah, I, wow. I'm learning that. I'm learning that. And so where do you find authenticity? And so I ended up looking at the systemic issues, and this started directing me for the first time towards politics. And then this Bernie Sanders character comes along as a boy who was raised by a single mom on welfare um, because her husband had died, uh, the father of my brother and my two sisters, and they're already teenagers by the time I come along. Complete accidental birth, according to the humans, the universe might have another story. Bernie Sanders comes along and, and I start to get inspired because he's speaking to my heart. He's talking about the, the upper classes that prevented people like my mother through their political policies. They literally incentivized my mom to never marry again because if she did, she'd lose her support. Yeah, we just explain that for everyone. You know, these programs that are promoted as, marketed as, to some degree intended to help people have actually been uh, misused to such degree that it has been detrimental to a generation or two. For instance, the, the welfare program, which when people are in need, there, we should have some kind of a program that will help lift them up, that will give them aid. If we were a, a small village of people and somebody fell in hard times, we'd all pull together and say, let's get here, 100 bucks from you, 100 bucks, let's get these people, let's pay their rent, let's help them. And so to that aspect of it, it's a good idea. But what it actually is, is a way to keep people dependent. And so when my mother's husband died, she had to get government assistance. They were thriving. They, they were middle class, doing very, very well, living the 1960s dream in America. White picket fence, own their home, all of it. Suddenly my mom had to reach out and say, I need help. I have three kids and then now a fourth that I wasn't expecting. 
that I have to raise on my own. And so as soon as she got into that program, you get so much money per child as a single parent. But the moment you have another breadwinner under your roof, they see that as you no longer need help. And now the tough position that puts a lot of women in is if they have a wound like my mom had, which is he might go away by choice or by death. If I get into this program and he goes away, how many months will it take me to get back on this program? And will my children starve in the meantime? And so they're incentivized to keep the man out of the house. And this has mostly been detrimental to people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a product of that. I watched that happen to my mom. I watched her have a boyfriend for a number of years. And every time he wanted to move in, just trying to assure her, I'm staying. I'm with you. I'm staying. But, but to her, she, he couldn't guarantee that because what if he dies? You know, mm. what if he goes away? She had a deep wound from the love of her life dying. But what happens if you look at the statistics of particularly, I'll just focus on young boys because I'm a man and I have two sons, the crime rate for any young boy who's raised in a household without a father is like nine times more likely that they're going to end up dead in prison. Young females end up pregnant at a very young age um, in abusive relationships. Just not having the family unit as a whole can do a lot of damage to kids particularly when the mother had to do with, with what my mother had to do. She was receiving state um, help, at the, but at the, it wasn't enough to, to really survive. So she also was working under the table. And so that meant I spent a lot of time alone as a child. I'm grateful for all of that. I'm not a victim of anything. I'm grateful for exactly the way my life was and was not. It gave me grit. It made me look at things deeper. That alone time forced me without, you know, we didn't have iPads and all the crap that we have today, all the screens to look at. It forced me to be innovative. It forced me to go out and work with my hands, to build my own go-karts, to, mm. to be creative. And so I'm grateful for that experience exactly the way it was. Um, but that's how the system works. And so we're just learning now because we're now in a state of this, you know, being locked down because of a pandemic. We're starting to understand how much control and influence politicians have on our lives and our freedoms. And now when I look back at, at that program and I, and I realize, you know, part of me goes, well, thank you for offering the support to help my struggling mother at that time. We needed the support. But damn you for abusing your own system to such a degree that you killed my mom's dreams and her opportunity to ever have love again. And that's what you're doing to millions of people through your programs. And they know it. They want dependency. Because if you can be dependent upon the state, you can be controlled. The last thing they want is sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Jumping back to where I was, when Bernie started talking about all of this, I was very moved because I said, yes, we need to change that system. I understand it. We need to help the people in the bottom and bring them up. I end up befriending Rosario Dawson and Shailene Woodley, two actresses who were traveling with Bernie. And they're like, come with us. And I said, okay, wonderful. And I'd go on the road and I traveled from California and ended up all the way in Philadelphia, documenting and helping promote Bernie the whole time. Not knowing really the history of socialism, definitely having no idea what democratic socialism was. But at that time, believing that anything democratic is good, right? So I thought, well, 
I, I've heard bad things about the socialism thing, but democratic socialism, I'm hearing that it's good. And I would start to ask people questions as we're on the road. Now, I, I edit everything that I shoot. And so I'm always asking questions as an editor. Do I have the totality of the answer so that I can go back into the editing, editing bay and have a complete narrative? I feel it in my mind and my heart when I get an answer I need. And I go, good, let's move on because now I have what I need to make a, a, a complete narrative. But while I'm on the road with Bernie, I never experienced this feeling of no one's answering my question. They either can't or they won't. About democratic socialism? About all of it. Okay. All I'm getting back are these emotional statements. There was nothing empowering in it. It was everyone's a victim. Everyone's oppressed. All rich people. And that really got me. You know, I was like, like, like the rich is, they're wicked. They don't care. No, none of them care. The 1%, they don't care. And I'm going, well, hold on a second. The, the godmother of my children is worth a few hundred million dollars. She's in the 1% fully. It's a single mother who created a protein bar that took off. And she, she did it. She nailed it. The American dream, right? And she's worth a, a couple hundred, at least million dollars. And she's one of the most kind, honest, generous women on this planet. So I thought, well, I know you're wrong there. And I have some other friends that are worth millions that are some of the best people I've ever known. So this feels to me like the, like the mentality level of, of, of a racist, right? A racist, a racist hears things or has a bad experience with someone outside of their culture and they go, that culture bad. It's that extreme thought process that has them take their experience with three or four people and assign it to an entire race of people. It's, it's very low level thinking. And I'm watching this happen. I'm going, we can't assign evil to everyone who is worth millions. That's the same level of thinking that on one hand, you're saying we need to eradicate from this nation, but you're doing it right in front of me. And, hmm. and I'm seeing all this and I'm going, there's some confusion talking about cognitive dissonance, right? There's a lot of confusion here. And then one day somebody said something to me about, they said, they said, have you ever heard Bernie say anything positive about America? And I went, yeah, of course. What? Um, uh, let me go back to my edit bay and let me, I'll find it and I'll send you a clip. I go back and I'm like zipping through stuff. And I'm like, I've shot hours of footage here. He's never said anything positive about America. I have a ton of negative stuff. That's a problem, isn't it? Shouldn't you love your nation? Shouldn't there be love involved in like, I love this there's, you know, some form of benevolent patriotism that makes you want to like run for the leader of this nation. And all I heard was it was racist and immoral and everyone's oppressed. And I heard all of this and I, there were things that inspired me, but I'm like, what, what is it that inspired me about this? Was it empowering or was it that I felt that he got my pain? And then I went, hold on. Every spiritual fraud that I've worked with, that's what they use. They capitalize on our suffering. Mm. They want to be the savior. I have the answer. And if you follow me and you buy my course, yeah. And I started to really listen to Bernie and go, oh, I want to like him so bad. But I know enough to know that this rhetoric is not healthy. And then I was told by some very dear friends of mine, they said, one, one of them was from Vermont, and he 
and said, you're not going to want to hear this. <laughs> I've known Bernie for years. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen by the time you get to Philadelphia. He's going to cash it all in for Hillary Clinton. And I'd already done deep research on, on the Clintons. My family's from Arkansas. And so I, I had heard about the Clintons for, since I was a child. And I knew, you know, as a man who thinks having a, a female in the Oval Office one day would be amazing for America, I would want that, but not that one. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a criminal enterprise. And so, you know, I'm like, there's no way. You don't, I'm on the road with him. I told my friend, I just arrogantly shot him down. I said, there's, there's no way. Do you hear what Bernie, he calls her out on stage. He's been fighting the good fight. Look at his, his, he's got consistency on his side. Look what he's been fighting for for 50 years. And I went in this whole rhetoric and he goes, watch. And lo and behold, I'm in Philadelphia and Bernie grabs the mic. I nominate Hillary Clinton. And I went, oh, I actually had a good cry. I called my wife and I go, she always books my airfare for me. And I said, book me a ticket right now. I'm out of here. I'm gone. She goes, what? And I said, I'm gone. Bernie just did it. He did what they said he's going to do. And I can't believe it, but I'm on the airplane. I'm flying home and I'm thinking, I just want to believe the best. Right. I'm like, he had to, at that time I was very anti-Trump too. So I'm like, he had to, cause they don't want that. He doesn't want, okay, I get it. He's doing what's best for America. He, he's, he knew he wasn't going to be able to win because the DNC is corrupt and they're not going to let him in. So he's just doing what's best for America. Okay. Could I see this as a heroic act? Maybe that he's just sucking up his pride because it's, it's her or Trump. I honestly don't know who's worse at the time. I was like, you know, I don't like Trump's character, but I not sure that he would do some of the things that she's done. So I don't know that Bernie made the right decision, but if I could just believe that he did it for that cause, I want to believe that. But then I have to say everything that came after that, his willingness to support narratives that anyone behind the political curtain knew was fake. And Bernie would come right out there and talk about Russia gate and all this stuff. And people, anyone who knew, knew right away that that's a spin that that, that is to deter us away from the Podesta email leaks, the WikiLeaks email leaks. And Bernie's out supporting all these false, false ideologies. And I started to go really deep in the rabbit hole to understand what socialism was and what, and what democratic socialism was. And then I realized Bernie Sanders, this is going to piss off some people, and I'm sorry because it, it, I, it, I was devastated by it too, but he's a Trojan horse to usher in a system. He may actually think it's good, but I don't think so. But it's a system that will lead to the government having total control over us because that's what socialism ultimately brings. Now, there are elements of socialism that absolutely can work, but we have to get smarter to realize that in a nation of this size, structured the way it's structured, of how absolutely detrimental socialism will absolutely usher in something very similar to communism. And when I understood how that works and I became deeply educated in that system, I started to realize that Bernie isn't as good-hearted as I thought he was because he's got to know. So there's something going on there, and he's a lifelong politician. And so I'm, you know, I've, I withdrew all my support from Sanders. And I think that he's, um, he's done great damage to this nation actually. And that's, this is somebody who was a Bernie bro as the press called me. How familiar are you with Plato's allegory of the cave? Very much. I'd love for you to just share that with everyone, because I think it is so apropos because I've felt 
as I've come back from being out in the sunlight to share what I'm learning, I'm getting met with those, the same energy of those prisoners. They're like, you're fucking crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're an anti-vaxxer, like all the labels, right, that have you know been been thrown out there by the CIA to just discredit people who are truth seekers and who are bringing yeah. the facts. And so, if you could share that as a kind of a lead-in, that'd be amazing. I, I would love to hear your interpretation of it, and then I'll comment on that. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. And I'll try to make it brief, but but basically, um, these prisoners are born in a cave. And they are shackled in a way that they can only look straight ahead at a wall. Behind them is, it's a fire that lights up different images that pass between the fire and the wall. And so the prisoners are viewing the wall. So the idea is that there's, that is their reality, but in fact, it's not reality. It is a, it would be considered an illusion. Now what happens is one of the prisoners is set free and he starts to walk up the stairs and he sees the images that are being shown with the shadow. And he's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like I thought the thing on the wall was reality. And so he's confused. This is a little cognitive dissonance. Like what the fuck is going on? As he goes further up the stairs and outside of the cave, he actually sees the sun. And now the sun becomes, you know, as he gets deeper into it, it's like that is the true life force for everything. And he sees the birds and he sees the nature. He actually sees what is real. Mm-hmm. After having this experience, goes back down into the cave to wake up his brothers and say, hey, look, this isn't real. I was just out there and this is what's actually happening. And in short, they're like, fuck off. You're like, you're crazy. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. He still holds them in love, but he has to do his own thing. And, it, yeah. and that's, yeah. I think in some ways that resonates deeply with me and I'm still trying to navigate that in a way that it's not that I have the answers. I want to be very clear about that, but, but, but what I'm trying to offer to people is when I said earlier, like, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that the flu is down 90%? It's not down 0.9%. It's not down 2%, which would be interesting. It's down 90%. Is that interesting to you? Is there something to look at there? Yeah. You and I have talked about this. I've talked about it on the podcast in 2017 when I was at the shooting in Las Vegas. That was the beginning of cracking open my entire belief system, which was such a gift for me. That's right. And a lot of people haven't had that experience that just blows everything they ever thought was true out of the water. My 9-11. Exactly. And so I wanted to know, why the fuck am I here? Because it's not for any of the shit that I accumulated to get here because I'm completely unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. People can go into that experience of a 9-11 or a, a Las Vegas shooting and then go back and try to put together that the pieces of the egg into their stay 
comfortable in that discomfort and just be like, okay, like I'm still good. I still have all the money I need and I have a nice house. I have a nice life. I've been asked by close friends, what are you searching for, dude? Like what, what's, it's like, I can't even explain it, but it's like, I, it's, there aren't words, but I just, I'm going without really knowing, but I know there's something there for me to understand better. You know, it's like going down into the the cave with the prisoners and you just, you want what's best for people. I care deeply about what's happening. And that's why I'm, from the moment I met you, I've been so connected to you and your story and the way you show up. Talked about the way you and your wife, Nadia, are together and the way your relationship with your kids and your friends and the work you've done that's out there for people to see, like all of it, it's all aligned, every bit of it. And so I get, I have the good fortune to spend hours and hours with you to go deep down these rabbit holes that are really challenging for people. But I know that I'm held in this space with you and that you're doing it with, like I said, an open heart, that you truly care about the children and the generations to come and that this is a moment. I forget exactly what I had asked you about before okay. I brought I'm up with you. I'm tracking the it. cave. I'm, first of all, really great breakdown of Plato's allegory. And I'm glad you brought it up during this podcast because it is such an important thing for us to understand. Um, that's what's happening. It's, it's really about projection, right? So you have the portion of our collective society that is actually seeing what's happening. And those of us who have had an extreme experience, who have had, were present during the Las Vegas shooting, they were present during 9-11. Unfortunately and fortunately, it apparently requires us a massive experience to shake us so hard that those imprinted belief patterns go away just long enough for us to allow something new to come in. And so for me as a filmmaker, I, I, I look at that and I think, how do I manufacture this for people? How do I, short of, you know, creating a false flag event that wakes everybody up. How do I do this through, you know, building a bridge instead of burning them? How do I build a bridge here to help people see what I've seen? Because I've, you know, I've, I've been accused of a lot of things, but if you look at my movies, if you just can get out of the emotional reaction, surely there's something that has been said that you can challenge or that, or that some people can say, I don't agree with that, but can we coexist in a world where, you know, I think the Beatles are amazing and you hate them. Of course we can. You know, it's like we, we have a total difference of opinions when it, when it comes to, you know, some things. And yet what, what we've been wired to do, and this is the thing that I, I would love for the, um, for the masses to see more than anything. And it's the one thing that we don't want to see is that for a number of decades, through a concerted effort, by people who understand, have spent their lives understanding the human mind. We have had um, seeds planted in our psyche through everything that we've experienced, everything that we've allowed in, every billboard, every commercial, every sitcom, every politician, every narrative, every job training. All of it has been, in some degree, infiltrated by an agenda, a 
especially our curriculums. If you went to college, mm. you very, very likely experienced a professor who was inserted into that system to plant seeds that would ultimately grow what we're now experiencing, which is hate and division. Um, in that, that, that's, you want to talk for just a, a snippet about yeah. the CIA infiltrating these yeah, different institutions. Yeah. This is in pandemic two, uh, doing it in the smallest nutshell as possible. Um, there are several different programs, but the one that I chose to feature was operation mockingbird, uh, because that was that directly affected the media. And so the CIA was caught in the seventies. There was a massive trial called the church hearings. Um, they were caught. They had infiltrated all of the media, newspapers, radio, television of that era. And they had over 3000 journalists, writers, editors that were under direct contract with the CIA, a matter of public record, no conspiracy theory here. Sit with that for just, just a fucking second, yeah. 3000 plus. And those, those are the ones that, you know, were under direct contracts, but how many under the table deals were done, you know, but those are the ones they had to cop to in the court case because there's paper, a paper trail. Fortunately, I skipped a lot of my college classes, so I didn't get too yeah. much of those seeds. I got them later on, I'm sure, but. Yeah. <laughs> so they planted people in um, influential positions. This is why so many celebrities are so lost. And when you see them, you just go, what are you talking about? Like what, where? Like, like, I love you as an entertainer or whatever, but your ideologies are insane. One of the reasons is, is because Hollywood has such great influence on the world. Anything with great influence has been a target of the CIA and other, other mind control programs. And I'm careful using any of that terminology because, again, we've been wired trigger words. You say mind control and people go, ah, conspiracy theorist. But what else do you want to call it? It's the ability to control your mind, to control your thoughts, to have you react in a way that serves their agenda. And one of the main things that they want people to do is to be the police for them. So they don't have to fight their battles. Big Pharma doesn't have to fight their battles anymore. Not only are they legally immune from any damage that they do, but you don't ever see an exec going on TV and debating or online going, here's, here's what Merck really does. Here's what Pfizer really, they don't have to anymore because they have the armies of the people that they've told them, they said, if anyone says anything, anything, questions our agenda to vaccinate the world, they are a threat to your grandmother and to your children and to your health and your future. They are the evil ones. And the fact that millions of people go, okay, aye, 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 sir, good. And then someone like you says, isn't it odd that the flu has disappeared by 90% for the first time ever? You look at the chart and it goes, duh, duh, duh. very predictable, very predictable. And then plummets right when the pandemic is announced. I mean, is anyone willing to just go, Cal, you're onto something here. That's interesting. Was there a cure for the flu all of a sudden? Are we assigning all of the flu cases to COVID? It sure looks that way. It is that way. That's what's happening. They want cases, right? So that's, that's why it plummets. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I have said all along, the pandemic is an absolute fraudulent manufactured hoax. I'm not saying the virus is. I'm not saying there aren't, I'm, I get accused of it all the time, but I'm like, show me any blog, any part of my movie where I've actually said that COVID-19 is a hoax. I've never said that. 
I've always treated it as it's a real virus and people have suffered. But when you look at the, at, they say, follow the science. And I, and I say, I am, <laughs> I am. But what they're really saying is follow the scientists who we pay to say what we want them to say. That's what they're really saying. Follow Anthony Fauci. And I say, well, hold on. Anthony Fauci has backtracked on everything from masks don't work to they work to, you know, we need two weeks to flatten the curve to we need two years to, to hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Okay, it does work. It's like, you want me to follow that guy? Because he's America's doctor, quote unquote. I don't, I don't, Give me a reason to follow him. I know his past. He's the last guy I'm going to follow right now. So I'm following the actual analytics, the stuff that hasn't been you know, falsified. That's right. When you look at the clean stuff, the clean data, and thankfully there's still enough organizations out there that are producing real stats that you can look at and you go, well, this is anyone with a little bit of a common sense can say they're assigning the seasonal flu to COVID cases to make the numbers appear larger than they are. And then if you can just accept that, and that's obvious in the science, you go, well, that's obvious. Okay, if they're doing that, why? Why wouldn't you just let it be what it is? Just by admitting that clearly they're doing that, and most people can admit that, especially if they look at the real data, they go, okay, it's there. Then you have to say, why? Why do they feel the need to lie? There must be some other agenda here that they benefit from by inflating the numbers. What is that? Well, ultimately, it's fear. It's panic. Because then what happens? Now, look, we're sitting here on a beautiful rainy day. This is flu season. Now, whereas a year ago, you would have gotten flu symptoms and gone out and got a bottle of NyQuil or whatever, you know, Wonderful hippie remedy we can find. Yeah, my wife's got plenty. Yeah. And we would have just done that. We would have stayed in bed for three days and told everyone we got the flu, cancel your appointments and, and you know, you deal with it and you go back to your life. But now people go, I got a sore throat. Oh shit, I'm going to die. They're off to the emergency room. So then, then they can go, look at the emergency rooms. They're overflowing. This is real. How horrible and immoral of you to even suggest this pandemic isn't real. We have the evidence. I work in emergency right now. It's like, I'm not doubting that you're not experiencing an overwhelmed emergency room right now. But have you asked yourself why it's overflowing? Really? You can manif manufacture events like that very easily, especially when you have a, a population that is in fear. You can make them do anything you want them to do. But the fact that you can't, suggest that we should look deeper is the real problem that we need to look at. Big I'd time. rather be pulled by my love for freedom, for my love for people, for my love for health, than I would be to be stopped by my fear of being liked. That's the season I've stepped into. I know you have. And it's not, again, I don't want people to get it twisted. It's not to, to say things just to trigger, but it's like, what, what am I afraid of? What is true for me? Can I just honor that and not worry about being liked anymore? Because I know who I am and I will attract those who see that for what it is. Mm -hmm. And those who can't, that's okay. I have love. 
but I don't have time to pull you up to try to explain everything to you the way I see it, because you're just gonna pull out, well, what about this? And well, it's, it's like with, with your movie, Plandemic, I'm like, I can't, ex- I can explain some parts of it. If you come at me, I don't know all the stats, but what I can tell you is Mickey has done a fucking unbelievable job of walking you through the whole thing where you arguably are nodding your head the entire time. Like this all makes perfect sense. And so I I often have to preface it like, look, this is an important movie. Maybe the most important one I've seen. One of the things that I've done that has created the most extreme cognitive dissonance, since this is kind of the, the, the theme of this podcast was after the release of, you know, we got hammered on Plandemic One. It became the most viewed and banned piece of media of all time. So over a billion views with a B and the censorship was unprecedented. When you say anything against the, the powers that be, especially those that are connected with big tech, like Google, we have free speech, but we don't have free reach. They have the ability to kill your reach. And the big tech went after us in a way that they've never gone after anything before. They went after GoDaddy. They shut down our URL. They forced Vimeo to shut us down. Dropbox went into our private password-protected files and deleted everything. Say that again for the people listening. Dropbox went into our private password-protected files that they shouldn't even have access to. Private stuff. At the time, we were building the stuff around Bill Gates, and they deleted everything to do with Bill Gates. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's terrifying is what it is. I mean, that's, this is the land of the free, right? And so when we understand that they have the capability and the willingness to do that, because when a, a, a company with the power of Google has the ability to say, Dropbox, do you want to exist next quarter? When you disappear from all search results, your company goes away. We will fix it such that no one will ever see you online again. Dropbox goes, so I can't be mad at them, right? They're going, shit, what do I do? You know, do I violate my relationship with Google or do I go after these guys? I might even agree with their movie and, and my, I might think they're, they're on to something, but at this stage, I got to save my company. So I don't blame them for it, but it really points us toward the need to be sovereign in everything that we build. And that technology is coming with decentralization and all the different blockchain technologies that are coming. We'll have that in the matter of the next couple of years. But the thing that I did, let me go back to that. The thing that I did that created the most cognitive dissonance was after Plandemic 1, I decided, okay, I'm going to make Plandemic 2. And now I've realized that, that people are so damn lazy that they're going to hear, they're going to look at Snopes, one of the most fraudulent, BS political spin machines on the planet. They're going to listen to this guy who's already been accused of fraud by every partner he's been with, the owner of Snopes, whose wife, who at one point was her lead researcher, he met as a Las Vegas call girl, a prostitute. Like these are the people that are the arbiters of truth in America, you know? And it's just, it's, it's laughable. It's so, it's like this, you can't write this yet. But they're going to debunk myself, which is easy to do because I'm just a filmmaker. I'm not, I don't have a degree. But you're going to 
debunk renowned virologists. You're going to debunk, you know, I have Nobel laureates in my movie, people who discovered the AIDS virus, people who discovered anthrax, people who just, you know, like they, these top immunologists, infectious disease experts, and you're going to debunk them with Snopes? Like think of the logic of that. It's really, it's really nuts. So to these fact checkers and people, we said, you've just debunked us based upon this. You know, one point being, you said, Judy Michaelbitz lied. She's, and this is what you use to convince the world she's a liar. You said, she said that she was arrested with no warrant. Then you guys show the warrant to the world and you say, here's proof on paper that this woman is a liar. But you didn't scroll down to see that there's no signatures on those warrants. That's not official warrant. You left that part out. Interestingly, you show the whole document except for the signature part mm. because that's the thing they used to convince people that if she lied about that, she must be lying about everything else, right? And so I, we got so hammered on, on part one that I said, I'm, I'm going to play the game in a new way. And I'm going to show them every claim that I make. I'm going to show them on screen because mm. they're too damn lazy to do their own research. I'm going to have my graphics team show them the patent show them the arrest warrant, show them everything, and even highlight the damn thing so they, they can freeze frame and look and see it for themselves. If they want to go, don't take my word for it. If you want to find out if that's accurate or, or, or real, go look it up. We'll give you all the different pathways for you to find it yourself. And so we did that with Plandemic 2. Every claim that we made, and there's some really big claims that I left out, only because the documentation has been scrubbed. We know it's absolutely accurate, but because I couldn't show it on screen to the, you know, to the um, dissatisfaction of some of my crew, I said, cut it out. I will not put anything in there that we can't show them on screen. This is, this is the actual patent. This is the addendum. This is what it served. This is what everything, single claim. So the thing that caused cognitive dissonance was after we went through this whole process with part one and we started to go after all these fact checkers and challenge them and we saw because I, I was at a point for a little while where I thought, wow, Judy Michaelvitz made some claims here that I don't know. I'm trusting her. I mean, I, I really, really feel I have a great BS detector and I really feel that this woman's telling me the truth. But she also might be wrong. Maybe she's telling me the truth from her perspective, but maybe she's, you know, through the years, she's repainted something in her own colors. And, um, and so I wanted to find out too, because I actually thought, there's a great opportunity for me in here. And that is if anything is inaccurate in, in any of my movies, I want to come out publicly and I want to admit we got it wrong because right now the ego is so powerful in the collective that nobody wants to say I'm wrong. Sorry. There's something really powerful and honorable when, when I'm around people that are willing to, to be that humble, to say I was completely wrong. You got me. Uh, like my respect for them skyrockets. And so I thought this would, this is probably good PR too, because if I'm able to go out and say, listen, I released something in this particular point that Judy Michaelvitz said, I now understand is inaccurate. And I want to take responsibility for that. I'm the one that edited this piece. I'm the one that allowed that misinformation to go out. And I want to show you what it looks like for us to take responsibility when we make a mistake. And so I turned my research team on it. They couldn't find anything. I said, mm. really? So just like one, there's a couple comments that she made. It kind of spoke extremely, but you can't prove it with science. She might be right. 
it's just unknown at this point. And I went, really? Wow. I got, then I was kind of happy. I was upset because I'm like, oh, I really wanted to go out and do this. Yeah. Yeah. But wow. Then I got more confident and I went, let's look deeper at all these points. And then we released part two and I, I knew it was bulletproof. It went through three email chains filled with vaccine experts, filled with patent experts, filled with political experts. First, I'd send them script. Here's the script. Here's what I plan on creating. And, and they would help me take that language to an area that was indisputable. Then we'd create the vignette and I'd send that off to these email threads. And I'd say, poke holes in it, please. And some people would say, yeah, I, you can't prove this. I wouldn't say that. Or I, I understand that that's what everyone believes, but this is a, you know, be careful when you go into that territory. And I'd, I'd tailor it so that it was bulletproof. After it's released, I already knew they're, they're going to, good luck trying to debunk part two. Good luck. And so, of course, they came out and they brought up a bunch of stuff. And David Martin, who's the main feature in mm. Plandemic 2, who's just a hero. Legend. He went, total legend. He went, um, there were a couple of times when, you know, I talked to David. I said, let's go up against these fact checkers. Let's, and we did it online. And David, he would reach out to them and say, hello, whatever your name is. I, I'm, you know, the lead speaker in Plandemic 2. And we, we, we see your debunk, you know, your attempt to debunk us here. And, um, and I've gone line by line here and I've, I want to prove where every one of your points is inaccurate. And some of them would come back with something that I'm, I'm reading all the threads and I, and a couple of times it'd come back with, you're wrong here and here's the data and here's the, here's the patent and here's what it actually says. You left out the most important part. And I would go, oh shoot, they got him. Mm -hmm. No, <laughs> David Martin would come back and go. Uh, there was an addendum in 1996 <sighs> that overrode that entire paragraph and here it is and here, and they'd just be like, Oh, oh shit. Wow. Okay. We stand corrected. And he'd say, thank you. Are you willing to go online publicly and admit that crickets? They're gone. And he'd say, hello, just check in waiting for you to do that thing that, you know, journalistic integrity thing where you're going to go back and tell everyone that you guys got it wrong. I'm sure you're going to do that. Right. They're gone have no intention of doing that. So I went online, I go to my Facebook page and other forums, and I say, I will challenge anyone, $10,000 challenge. Here's an escrow account. I'll put 10K in it. Anyone willing to debate me, doctors, bring them on. And we'll debate if you can find one major claim in pandemic that can be proven inaccurate, indisputably inaccurate with science. You win my money. No one. Six months later, not one person has stepped forward to take that. The cognitive dissonance that that created, because so many people witnessed that, and they're trying to like, they'd, people that were just haters of me would go, you'd see them online sharing it, sharing it with all the doctors who wrote open letters, just going, somebody, please, somebody take this on. I mean, he's a conspiracy theorist. He's a liar, right? So why is nobody... I, I, hey, Dan, I know you know everything about this. I, here's this the guy who created Plandemic. Can you please put this guy in his place? Take his money. We would all love to see it. Come on. Come on, Dan. And sometimes Dan would go, yeah, this should be easy. Okay, great. Hi, Dan. Good to meet you. Are you ready to go? I'll put my money in the account right now. Oh, I can debunk this easy. They send me a fucking Snopes. <laughs> I'm like, Dan, you're going to have to try harder than that. Are you kidding me? You obviously haven't watched my movie. You didn't understand who these people are. You're not, that's not going to do it. Put your money where your mouth is. Find a claim, one claim mm. 
does that not inform you that something's going on here? This went out to the doctors who wrote open letters to me. I, I got a hold of them directly. And one that wrote a scathing letter to me. And I finally got a hold of her. She avoided me for two months and I was relentless. Finally, at one point, I'm like, I'm going to make all my threads to you public. I'm going to show people how much you're avoiding me. You won't even answer me. I'm, I'm hitting you on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook Messenger, every single place. I know you're getting these messages through your private website. I'm leaving messages. You're avoiding me. Why? And she writes back the weakest response ever. I don't want to give you any more airtime or any. Oh, fuck. You know, I don't want to expand your audience or your, your lies to the world or whatever. And I hit her back again. I said, well, if, if that's the case, you could shut me down real quick. And she says, maybe 2021 when I'm not busy fighting on the front line for all the people that you're slapping in the face and, you know, just some rhetoric, you know, yeah. crap, instead of just saying, hell yeah, I'll take that on. And the fact that it's been months and no one has stepped forward. So then what's really going on? What's really going on there, Cal? is the people have been indoctrinated, which is why I call pandemic two indoctrination, not indoctrination, but indoctrination because the doctors have been indoctrinated. They don't understand the ones who do finally get it. They have to go through a lot of self-forgiveness. I've been there with doctors as they start to wake up to the fact that most of their education has been paid for by big pharma. Most of their retreats they've gone on, their speaking engagements, every pamphlet, every drug rep that's come in to say, we have this great new, this helping people all over the world, bullshit. Just another opioid that's going to addict people and they're going to keep them sick and suppress their actual illness. We sustain them as lifelong customers to Big Pharma. That's what's happening. Look, I love doctors. I appreciate doctors. They take an oath to do no harm, to help you, to help your children, to help me and my children. Just like I feel for so many soldiers who sign up to protect their country and they end up getting bamboozled and realizing later that they were killing innocent people over their resources, their oil, or so that our country could take ownership of, of another foreign country. It's a very tough thing for a soldier to wake up to. It's a very tough thing for a doctor to wake up to. We'd rather stay in the pain of our illusion than face the discomfort of the unknown. The cave. The cave. It's the projection on the wall. Mm. As long as the media can keep saying, don't, don't look back there. Watch the projection. We're going to tell you what you're seeing. And if anyone tries to tell you any different than what we're telling you, don't trust them. They are the dangerous one. And so that's me. I'm the guy that came out from the outside went, Hey everybody. That's right. And I'm not alone. There's thousands, millions of us right now going, hey, everybody, we've just been outside. That's not, that's not real. This is a projection created by light and shadow. Those who you think are your friends, those smiling, charismatic people that you continue to vote for, want you in shackles. They want to control every aspect of your life and your health and your children. And some of the people, not all of them, but some of the people that they've told you are wicked and evil are fighting for your freedom. It's inverted. It's upside down. And we'll all see that together collectively yeah. in the same way that we can look back now and go, it's unbelievable that in the 50s, everyone believed that cigarette smoking was healthy. Mm -hmm. 
so much that doctors posed on cartons. The doctors wrote people prescriptions, women, weight loss. Anyone to say it causes cancer or whatever was a quack, was just rooted out of society because big tobacco had so much power. They wanted everyone smoking. They created, if you understand Edward Bernays, the, the father of public relations that literally admits on film that he started women smoking. He went out and convinced through a campaign, a commercial campaign. He convinced women, if you want to have power like a man, they smoke because it's a phallic symbol. You want to have what men have, you'll have a cigarette dangling from your mouth and you'll be just as powerful as men. He used this clever marketing to encourage a generation of women to kill themselves with nicotine. And the whole world believed that narrative. So the people that were standing up, the brave doctors who got villainized, that were standing up going, hold on, I've seen too many patients now with lung cancer. And every single one of them smoke four packs a day. There's some correlation here. They, oh, you're out of the AMA. You're gone. This is Judy Michaelovitz. This is all the doctors featured in my movies. They're speaking up now to tell the people that cigarettes are harmful. And there's so many people that go, I can't listen to you. But they will someday. This is the same thing that people are doing with politics right now. Is they're going, no, no, no. It's, no, you're wrong. I'm listening to the media. <laughs> oh, oh, the media that lies to you every single day, this, this entity that has been infiltrated for the last 60 years by actors that get paid a lot of money to convince you of what they need you to do so you'll go and bomb foreign countries so that you will be happy to pay more of your hard-earned wages into taxes. They've enslaved you, and these are the front people. These are the salespeople. You know, you have a car lot, mm. you have people in the offices that are dealing with the finances, and then you have the salespeople up front. That's who the, our media is become. They're the salespeople. Hey, what are you looking for? Ah, oh, it's the best car ever. This is what they do. They're there to sell you a car, whether it's the right car for you or not, whether it's a lemon or not, whether you can afford it or not. They don't care that you're in debt and you can't make us $800 car payment. You need this car. Mm. It's the same mentality. And people are starting to wake up to that. Have you noticed that morality has been weaponized? Our language has been weaponized? Are you paying attention to the fact that if I say anything patriotic, if I talk about freedom, if I talk about love for our country and that we should focus on problems here at home first, if I say anything of that nature, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, you must be. What? Really? Like, when did that happen? And if you look at the agenda behind that, there is a real agenda behind that. If we can turn the next generations against everything American, they won't fight for it. If you don't love your nation and you think it's was founded on rape and theft and genocide and it's disgusting to you, you won't fight for it. And if you won't fight for your nation, you won't fight for your city, your county, your neighborhood, your home, your family, your freedom. Mm. It's all interconnected and linked. And so there's a concerted effort to have us reject 
the very nation in which we're so blessed to be part of. Do we have a horrific past? Yes. What nation doesn't? And we have course corrected like no other nation has done before. There are nations that still throw gay people off of buildings. Thank God I'm not who I was in my late teens. Being raised without a father, I had to go out and do everything the hard way. And I was not on a good path. And thank God that I, of course, corrected myself. But do I hang on to who I was? And do I shame myself and limit my future based upon my history? Mm. Or do I look back and pat myself on the back in a humble way to say, good work, good work, young man. You were there and now you're here. Mm. And now you're a loyal, loving father of two amazing boys and an extraordinary wife. You deserve this life. If I hang on to who I was, I don't feel that I deserve my life. And when you have that unconscious or subconscious thought that I don't deserve this life, mm-hmm. you will sabotage your life. You know what I mean? I do. You know. You will sabotage it. You will destroy your relationships. You will make moves that disgust you just to validate your self-hatred. And it's very detrimental to our success. It's very detrimental to our collective evolution. There's a great deal of power in gratitude. Gratitude allows us to say, thank you for what I have. Thank you for the experiences that I've had. Even the pain. No, sorry, especially the pain. I've had a lot in my life. And I'm grateful for that because now I see it as every little struggle is a chip away at that block of stone that ultimately reveals the masterpiece beneath. And I'm very content and fulfilled in reflection of who I used to be. It blows my mind to be in a place where I can say, I've been with my wife for 18 years. We fall in love every single day. Our relationship is new and more exciting than it's ever been today than it was when we first met. My children adore me. I adore them. We have an incredibly strong family unit, and not a lot of people can say that. That strength of that foundation, which is so important, which is why I'm such a fierce stand for family, because when you have that, you can do your big work in life. It's the security of my family that has me go, I'm just going to tell the truth, and if all the people in my life go away, It's actually okay because I have my family. Mm -hmm. The strength of knowing that I have that and that's all I really need allows me to just be me. If I'm afraid, like I used to be, that telling the truth is going to have people go away and then I'm left alone because I don't know how secure my relationship is and I don't know how long that's going to stay and all that insecurity, then I better play it safe because I need people. Mm -hmm. I don't need people right now. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredibly liberating experience to be in that position. I've had a lot of podcast hosts. You're one of the only ones who didn't start off the podcast with something of the nature of, I bet you've lost a lot of friends, haven't you? Hmm. To which I say, not one. I certainly have lost a lot of people who are posing as friends. But friends don't go away because they disagree with you. Friends pick up the phone and you talk about it. And you learn from each other. 
the friends that have gone away, the people that are posing as friends that have gone away are people that were willing to trash a 20 year relationship of knowing who the hell I am because the media told them that I'm a bad guy. And if that's how shallow their relationship mechanism is, I'm not interested in being related with them. Yes, sir. Save me some time. Thank you. Yeah. Now I have friends like you. Yeah, brother. Now we're in Texas. Yes. Where I got to say, man, it's like, um, there's a different vibe here. And there's something about the, the, the heart of the salt of the earth kind of people that I used to have a judgment for. Mm-hmm. It's something about that. The people who have maintained their family strength, very family strong here, mm-hmm. that the friendships that I've met, that especially the people that were born and raised here, when they call me bro, I feel it in a new way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's not just a catchphrase. You're not a bro who will stab me in the back tomorrow. You're a bro who will have my back tomorrow. And I didn't realize how inauthentic a lot of my relationships were until pandemic. And then I realized, wow, I, you know, 30 years in Hollywood, I have a lot of people in my life were related to the industry somehow. An industry that breeds people that, that look for opportunity. Because I'm a filmmaker, because most of my friends were, or the people that I thought were my friends, were somehow related. And they thought, well, he might bring me a job. I'm a writer. I'm an actor. He might hire me. That's not, I don't want that in my life. And so pandemic was just the sever, gone. Bye-bye. The great cleansing. The great cleansing. Yes. Two years before pandemic, my wife, my family, and I lost a home in the California Thomas Fires. So we had an 8,000 square foot home, my studio, brand new equipment that I just invested in turned to dust. We lost everything that we own. But what we gained, you can't put words on. It's ineffable. Because after that happened, my wife and I, we went from an 8,000 square foot home to a 650 square foot guest home. We said, we need to save every penny we have right now because I wasn't well insured and my livelihood is my equipment. I can't do the job without it. I need to save every penny I can. Otherwise, six months from now, we're going to be in bad shape. And it was so humbling for us. You know, me, my two kids, my two incredibly loud kids Mm -hmm. in a 650 square foot guest home with a dog and a cat, one bed. (laughs) And we're like from a three-story home to like, just like that. Brought back my whole 9-11 experience where I went, look how fast it went. Monolithic structure, dust. Thank you for the refresher to remember how impermanent all that crap is. Nothing against this crap because the crap is fun. Mm -hmm. But you just got to stay connected to what it really means. If it's filling some void, it's probably not the crap you need. If it's there as a celebration of life, it's okay. Have all the crap you want. You do what you want with your money. That's part of the freedom. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all this, ta- all this takes place. And, you know, I'm, I'm left with this experience of like, this fire is so valuable. I talked to my wife. I said, I said, babe, I think the fire wants to continue. She said, what do you mean? I said, what else are we hanging on to that we don't need right now? 
So we lost everything. I'm not talking about that necessarily. I'm talking about old behavior patterns. I'm talking about people that we call our friends. I'm talking about any left traces of opportunistic, you know, manipulation, anything that's in us that we just have learned from being, my wife was a gymnast and then an actress, but she was in that system too. I said, any of that stuff that, that residue that's left over from this machine that we're all part of, let's just let it all burn. What, what would it look like? I don't want to bring that stuff back in. I've never felt the absence of it in my life. And now I'm starting to, you know, it's kind of like when the, you know, you're in a place where there's a very low hum of an air conditioning happening. You don't know it until it shuts off and you go, oh, I didn't even realize that was on, but I can breathe now. Like something mm. you feel like I didn't realize that low frequency was creating a little tension in my body until it went away. And I went, I feel that now. I feel the relief. And so we have this mantra between us of let it burn. Mm. Honey, did you see what Rick just said about me online? <laughs> let it burn, babe. Mm. Yeah, let it burn. Just let it go. Do we need it? Is that, is that what our life is based on? That relationship or that? No, none of it. And that for me is true sovereignty. I'm about freedom. You want to love a pickle? <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you know, um, whatever. As long as it's not affecting my life. But if you want to go in as a teacher and tell my children that loving a human is wrong, but loving a pickle is right, I'm going to have a problem with that. Keep that out of my school and out of my children's head. That's your choice. Don't impose your choice on my children. I want my children free to find themselves, not constrained to live under belief systems that belong to someone else. I think this is a perfect place to segue into your relationship with your dad. As I mentioned earlier on, my mom, um, she had three kids. One was preteen and two were teenagers. Their father ends up dying, has a heart attack behind the wheel, crashes and dies. Now my mother's alone. She ends up getting help, quote unquote, from the system. And years go by and she's not, she's wounded. And she's not trusting love anymore. And she isn't dating. And as legend has it, and from what I've understood was a girlfriend encouraged my mom to go out. You need to get out and live your life. She goes out, they go to a local bar, and there's my dad, six foot two, steely blue eyes, and, and he's a you know, sailor man, and they have a fling. She gets pregnant. He's not ready for kids. And now she's going, what do I do? Doesn't believe in abortions. So she does everything she could do to get rid of me. Rode horses and did all kinds of stuff. The doctor said, don't do that. She wanted to somehow induce a natural miscarriage and just go, I don't, I can't have another, I have kids that are almost teenagers. I can't do this. I'm already struggling. And I'm, I was determined, hard-headed bastard me. I was like, good luck. And so I show up. Now my mom goes out of her way because there's a lot of my family that doesn't fully accept me. To my grandmother, I'm a bastard child. And she never liked my father because he was a deadbeat. She told me my whole life, your dad's a deadbeat. Don't be like him. Doesn't pay child support, doesn't whatever. And there was years when he really wasn't. He was very irresponsible. He had major issues with his father. And so he just didn't know how to be with particularly a son. 
didn't didn't want that experience because he had he, his father never told him he loved him once. And so it was just scary for him as a young man. And so my mother would, on one hand, talk very positive of him because she wants me to love my father, but then she'd always basically say in so many words, he owes you. He's never been there for you. So I grew up the story, dad owes me. And I saw him every now and then, quite frankly, and when I was young, his favorite bar was, our house was between his house and, the, and his favorite bar. So when he got too drunk to drive home, he'd park on our front yard, come in and crash in the chair. And I would sit there sometimes and just look at this big burly man and just be like, it's my dad. Like, I don't know what to say to him. I'm a little guy and I'm just like, sometimes I'd sit on his lap, but he's passed out, you know? And I'd just be like, I don't care what they say about him. This is my dad and I, and I love him. And I so wish we could be friends. I didn't know how to do that. I wish he were here more because when he shows up, it's really exciting, even though he sleeps the whole time. <laughs> so sweet. And, and then he started trying. He started, I got a little older and he started trying. He'd say, okay, you want to come stay with me for a weekend? And his place was quiet. and just It felt like an old, old person's home. There's nothing fun, no toys. I just remember going, like, I don't want to go there anymore, Mom. It's, he doesn't know how to talk to me. He doesn't know what to do. You know, but I still, and then he, I had a couple good experiences with him where he took me jeeping. He, he always had Jeeps and I'm like, that was fun. Like I felt like I had my first experience with dad. And so, um, and then when I get into my teens, he actually had a construction company. I worked for him for a summer. So I've really kind of got to know him. I'm like, okay, cool. He's funny. And God, he has a good heart. What a good, like, he really was telling me like I had long hair at the time. I was in a band and he's like, Hey kid, you do you. It's like to each his own. I remember the first time I heard that, I remember trying to put those words together, to each his own. What does that mean? Oh, oh, to, oh, okay. Like, don't, don't you worry about what they say, you know, about your long hair. Everyone's telling you, cut your hair. And I'm like, oh. That's, God, that I'm, is not dad talk Not dad at all. Then. I'm like, this is my dad. Like, he's funny and loves children and loves old people and loves dogs. He's just, he just pours his heart into dogs. You see how I am with your dog, right? It's yes. like, that's my dad. Yeah. And so my dad's 60th birthday, so this is almost 20 years ago, I had just started delving into my deep inner work. And I thought I was completely cool with that at that point. But now I'm going through this workshop. One of the assignments was to call whoever it is you're incomplete with. So I pick up the phone, I call my dad, and I said everything wrong. And I triggered him. I was like, Dad, you know, I know you hang on to a lot of guilt for doing this. What do you mean, my, my guilt? My what? You don't know my story. You don't know. Uh-oh. I should have just said, I'm sorry. Still, I but, love you. But I, right? I think a lot of people get what you're trying. You're right? trying to do the I'm, right I'm thing, but you're to, putting but your it, version of his that's story That's not what on he's him. hearing. I'm trying to free him up. And, he, and he's hearing like, what? Guilt? And I've done all this wrong stuff. And I've done what? You don't know who, but there's two sides to every story. And he gets defensive. And I'm like, uh-oh. First time I've ever gone there with dad. Yeah. Maybe the last time. Yep. So I'm nervous. I'm flying to Oregon. Like, what do I say to him? I'm so messed up so bad the first time. What do I say to this guy? So we go to the local fair and we're sitting on the bench and we're watching the women walk by. We both had a Budweiser in a giant big gulp size cup. My dad's hilarious, but he'd have a new comment every time, right? I'm just cracking up. I had no idea. He was so funny. And he's, he's making little comments and making little comments. And we're just there. And we're like, whoa, look at this one. Wow. And then I start going, okay, it's time. My dad's still playing the game. And I'm like, 
I kind of disconnect from that from <laughs> yeah, sure, I can totally see that. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, it's coming. Shit. Something's coming. What's coming? What is it? I have to say something. I have to say something. What the fuck do I say? I'm so afraid to say anything right now. Minutes go by. I'm like, shh, just say, just start talking. And I go, Hey dad. He goes, what? And I go, uh, there's something I need to tell you. He goes, okay. And I said, I just asked that you hear me out. And let me finish. He goes, oh, okay, yeah, cool, go for it. And I, go, I take a while, a long pause. And I go, I want to thank you. He goes, for what? And I go, I want to thank you for being perfect. And he looks over at me and one eyebrow goes up really high. And he goes, kid, I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> perfect is not one of them. <laughs> and I go, hear me out, dad. I go, something I want to say. He goes, okay, all right. Oh, yeah, I want to hear this. And I go, you were in the Navy, right, dad? He goes, yeah, I sure was. And I said, if the rudder of the ship you were on was off by one human hair, what would happen? And he goes, wow, take us to the wrong damn continent. I said, yeah. I said, dad, I've just done some work recently and I got to know myself. And I like myself a lot more than I knew I did. I'm actually really happy with the man that I'm becoming. If you were in my life one human hair more, I wouldn't be the man I am right now. I would be on the wrong continent. And I just want you to know, you know how they say God works in mysterious ways? I want you to know that I now see who you were was exactly who I needed you to be so I could be me. And all the rest, all the stories come from some, some idea that I'm now starting to see beyond. You're not being there when you weren't there allowed me to be my own man. And I can now sit here on a bench with these ridiculously large <laughs> cups of Budweiser. <laughs> and I can say honestly that you've never raised a hand to me. I don't have any bad memories of you. I have very few memories of you. And I'm good with that. We have a clean slate now, Dad, that we can sit here and be friends and look at the women and be in that photo booth making those silly faces together like we just were. You were perfect, Dad. He looks over at me one more time with that eyebrow. And he says, you've always been weird. (laughs) Yes. Everything changed after that between my dad and I. All the you owe me and all the story and all that stuff that was always fragile between us because there's all this history and stuff that grandma said and mom said, just be friends. Let's love each other. I know you love me. And I really hope one day you can let go of the guilt and the shame because it's not there for me anymore. I hear that story and I immediately think to 
my relationship with my dad. And a very similar conversation is to be had because even though on some level I'm good, right? We all know that I'm good. There's just a lot of, a lot of open loops that need to be closed and unspoken things that need to be spoken. So thank you for that. Perfect note to end on. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.